from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This episode, we talk to Dan Restrepo. Dan is an expert on Latin America. He was President Obama's national security lead on the region. He'll break down the Venezuelan crisis and uh, get us up to speed on what might happen next. Okay, Dan Restrepo. Dan Restrepo. Welcome to 14th and G. Great to be here. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a relatively simple question. So who's the president of Venezuela? That is not a simple question, CR. <laughs> and, you, and you well know it's not a simple question. So it turns out there's two folks who claim to be president of Venezuela right now. There's a guy named Nicolas Maduro who has been, who had been president for the previous five years, was reelected in an election that most of the international community condemned as a complete fraud. Uh, as completely illegitimate. And he was, as a result of that election, was supposed to take office for a second time on January 10th of this year. Um, he did so. He swore himself in as having reelected himself under completely phony pretenses. <laughs> um, and then um, on January 23rd, um, a guy named Juan Guaido, um, who no one had heard of before January 23rd, or virtually no one had heard of before January 23rd, um, who was the president of the legislature in Venezuela, the National Assembly, um, was also sworn in as president of Venezuela um, by the National Assembly under a provision in the Venezuelan constitution that says when they have an absolute vacancy of the president, meaning you have neither a president nor a vice president, sure. the president of the National Assembly, much like the Speaker of the House in the United mm-hmm. States, um, takes office, unlike the Speaker of the House in the United States, who would take office completely yep. uh, and serve out the balance of the term, mm-hmm. <clears throat> under the Venezuelan Constitution, um, basically, uh, Guaido becomes a caretaker president uh, with really mu- really the sole task of like running carrying out an election, okay. carrying out kind of a snap election um, to kind of reestablish democratic order. That's under normal circumstances. Um, Guaido... Uh, was very quickly recognized by the international community, or most of the international community, uh, as the legitimate interim president in Venezuela. Um, and there's no vice president? There wouldn't be a th- other... In our world, there's a president, vice president, and is there someone else so in this mix a, here, too? There, there is a vice president. So Maduro has mm-hmm. a vice president. Okay. Um, but under the... The, the National Assembly's theory, that vice president is every bit as illegitimate as Maduro. Okay. Uh, because the, she was named, Delcy Rodriguez, was named as vice president by Nicolás Maduro, okay. the illegitimately not elected de facto president of Venezuela. So it, um, the president mentioned this in the State of the Union, and, you know, kind of news is, is beginning to pick up around here. I think news is slower on these issues than, than probably it should be. There's now a humanitarian and food crisis. Um, what's the, there seems to be like some blockage of food can't go where it needs to go. There are hungry people. Right. That seems like an easily solvable problem. So things that should be easily solvable sure. in Venezuela aren't and mm-hmm. haven't been for a while. So in this immediate question of humanitarian assistance today to Venezuela, 
um, the United States and many of Venezuela's neighbors um, want to provide humanitarian assistance. Sure. There is an enormous, there's been an enormous economic collapse in Venezuela over the course of the last five or six years. Uh, and now the international community, quite frankly, the international community has been trying to do this for some time. And the Maduro regime has been saying no to that assistance. It's become even more acute over the course of the last 10 days or so, um, in part because this new interim government um, has mobilized people on the streets in Venezuela mm-hmm. and have started to use the delivery of humanitarian assistance as a loyalty test for the armed forces of Venezuela. So Maduro says, we're not going to accept, we don't need any assistance, sure. and we're not going to accept any assistance. Mm-hmm. He's kind of very publicly blocked um, a kind of six-lane, three-span bridge that connects Colombia and Venezuela. He's got like the trucks on it. He's got trucks. He put containers to block it. It's kind of this show that, no, we're not going to take this. Uh, Because Maduro claims all of this is somehow a coup. Okay. Um, And that the the humanitarian assistance is somehow part of this coup. Um, So it should be a pretty simple thing to get food to people in under real dire straits in Venezuela. Unfortunately, it is far from simple. Yeah, right and now. when you're turning to places like Colombia, um, who, who has a long history of not exactly the, but the, the greatest government uh, in the world, and you're turning to them and saying, please help us, um, that's a different, puts right. you in and a different place. Colombia here has played a pretty important role. So Colombia has come a long way um, over the course of the last 15 years from kind of what we imagine Colombia to be and sure. what we see in narcos and other yeah. things like that. I just like to think of like anything that was on TV to be actual right. fact. I, I, right. I, I understand, <laughs> I understand, but given I'm half Colombian, I gotta stand up for, I gotta stand up for my people here. And, uh, and also, I was actually in Colombia last week. Colombia, over the course of the last few years, has absorbed 1.3 million Venezuelan refugees. Um, this is into a country of about 40 million people, a country coming out of a very complicated um, internal armed conflict, um, a country that's kind of seen much better days, but still, that's a lot of stress sure. on the system. Uh, and the Colombians have been fabulous. They've provided work permits and assistance to these Venezuelans. Um, much like Venezuela did in bad days when Colombians, by the sure. hundreds of thousands, had to go from Colombia to Venezuela um, to avoid the internal armed conflict in Colombia. Um, so the Colombians have really stepped up. Um, the Brazilians have stepped up to some extent. And quite frankly, the region, Latin America, kind of a- as a group, have done a lot to help the Venezuelans. There's more than three million Venezuelans have left Venezuela mm-hmm. Over the course of the last five years, and so how did we get here? Because isn't Venezuela have a ton of oil and gas? And I know that that's not the the end of the world, but certainly there are a lot of countries that don't have a thing. They've got a big thing right. that's really expensive. So one of the most fascinating things about Venezuela is that it's a failed state, but it's a failed state with resources and cash flow. Right. Those are two things you don't often find in failed states. Right. Um, yeah, it's got the largest proven oil reserves in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is sitting on, again, more oil than Saudi Arabia, more oil than the United States, sure, more oil than Canada. Um, so incredible mismanagement and corruption is how we got here. Okay. Um, that's the simple version of how we got here. Um, the Venezuelans, this all goes back to 1998, mm-hmm. when a guy named Hugo Chavez um, becomes elected president of Venezuela. Right. And Chavez was a leftist populist um, who came to office when oil was at a very low price, um, came to office with a very discredited kind of political system before, because Venezuela has been long been a rich country with many poor people. Sure, sure. 
Uh, and Chavez rode oil from less from eight dollars a barrel, if I'm remembering correctly, when he came to office, to over 110 dollars a barrel. Mm-hmm. And he totally mismanaged when it was at 110. He started using that money to try buying political support all over Latin America and the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, he lined his pockets and the pockets of his cronies. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also started buying out private enterprise sure. in Venezuela. Okay. Um, either expropriating, or either confiscating or expropriating. Confiscating is when you take it and you don't pay somebody. Yeah. Expropriating is when you take it and you do pay for it. Right. Uh, market price. But started buying up a bunch of the free market enterprises that existed in Venezuela. Uh, it turns out that doesn't work really well. <laughs> um, you know, it didn't didn't work any better in Venezuela than it has a- anywhere else. Right. Um, and through a m- Venezuela went from being a country that was self sufficient in agriculture to an importer of almost everything it consumes. Thus leading us to the food situation. Thus leading us to the food situation. And then when the price. Is, so Chavez dies in 2012. Mm hmm. Maduro is kind of becomes his heir apparent, gets elected the first time in a questionable election, but more legitimately, more, more than certainly more than legitimate than the one that happened last year. Yeah. And kind of continues this ride to ruin. But particularly as the price of oil comes down, um, the ability to just buy everything they needed and keep the status sure. quo going gets increasingly hard. So in the last two years, you've seen, you know, million percent inflation last year in in venezuela uh you've seen just all sorts of just incredible mismanagement production of oil uh and gas in venezuela has fallen off the table Hmm. um in part because of a brain drain in part because they've kind of politicized the state-owned oil company um and and just kind of a, a again mismanagement and corruption they've just kind of been so busy stealing things they couldn't even make sure to o- pump oil effect it's a little like the uh you know kind of the end of a ponzi scheme right you start running out of Correct. cash you can't do it and it just and right. it tumbles what's the um so what's the us doing now what's the what are we trying to do what right. are we you know that kind of stuff so the us right now um has actually taken in large measure the us had taken a backseat um to other countries in latin america and the caribbean who've shown real leadership on this over the course of the last year plus, um, particularly with changes in government. So you've gotten a series of um, right-of-center governments, or in the case of Brazil, very far-right yeah. um, governments, um, replacing governments that had been more sympathetic to Venezuela, or at least governments that had been much less willing to confront the Venezuelans. Um, so you've gotten two things. The Venezuelans have gotten worse at what they were doing in yeah. terms of corruption and political repression, which we haven't touched on, which yep. we'll get to. Um, at the same time that you have a series of governments that are kind of more willing to stand up to them. Sure. Those governments have kind of started increasing diplomatic pressure, uh, making calls for the reestablishment of democracy. Uh, And the United States has kind of followed that in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. The one place the United States has led, uh, and this started under President Obama and has continued under President Trump, is in sanctioning individuals uh, in the Maduro regime. Okay. Um, so bad actors. So bad actors. P- particular bad actors. Particular bad actors, um, sanctioning them basically in one of two ways, uh, freezing any assets they might have in the United States right. in terms of banking accounts um, and real property. Some some of these folks buy houses in sure. South Florida in particular and preventing them from further access to the U.S. financial system. And then also visas, um, pulling mm-hmm. people's visas so they can't visit the United States. Um, that started under President Obama. It has expanded under President Trump. 
Um, in the last six months or so, and in particularly in the last couple of weeks, the Trump administration has also ramped up sectoral sanctions. What's that mean? That means, yeah, in plain <laughs> English, um, going after um, the petroleum, to the petroleum revenue to try sure. um, making sure it doesn't end up in the hands of uh, Maduro and his cronies, uh, but rather uh, under the control of the legitimate democratic authorities in the country, being the National Assembly and interim president, Guaido. Also sanctioning gold mining in uh, mm. Venezuela, which is another source of revenue sure. for the regime. So trying to cut off, kind of going at the, those pieces of the economy that the regime is using to kind of persist in power. Sure. Um, and and with the Delicate Balancing Act, and you always have the Delicate Balancing Act on when you do broader sanctions, when you're not just sanctioning particularly bad actors, mm-hmm. um, of trying not to harm people who are already um, living under really difficult sure. conditions. Sure, right, right. So I wonder, other than, like, this is a really bad humanitarian problem, like, the U.S. has a long history of messing around in other people's democracies and right. saying that basically our democracy is the way to go. Why do we do that? And I, I, I'm not asking a, a super simple question. I mean, there must be some kind of overarching, look, we'd rather deal with more democracies than not. We'd rather have a trustworthy government than not. Right. So let me unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um so part of this starts with the U.S. has always had a very interesting way of looking at the rest of the Western Hemisphere. Sure. Um, and we've had a traditionally a very much an ownership mentality mm-hmm. um, that this part of the world was ours. Yep. Um, and we got to decide what happened here. Mm-hmm. So the, the starts, the, the clearest application of this, some called the Monroe Doctrine. From sure. When President James Monroe was around. Um, and basically said at the time, and this was vis-a-vis the British more than anything else, um, that we weren't going to allow other great powers, mm-hmm. p- European powers, to have political influence and to have a military, a naval presence sure. in the Western Hemisphere. So kind of evolving from that, the U.S. has always kind of, again, seen itself as an, as an owner. Mm-hmm. Um, has largely seen itself as an owner. Um, and the U.S. has done a lot of things in the name of democracy, mm-hmm. but I think a better way of understanding it is done most things in the name of stability. Okay. Um, so we did. We backed a lot of non-democratic actors okay. during the Cold War, sure, of course. in particular, mm-hmm. um, in the name of stability. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that didn't really work, right? Um, because in some places we went quite anti-democratic in the mm-hmm. sense that we supported, for example, the Pinochet coup in Chile against mm-hmm. a freely elected yep. president um, in Salvador Allende. Um, there's uh, countless examples. Our Benz in Guatemala in 1954, um, where, again, the U.S. sides with um, stability, quote-unquote, rather than um, left-leaning, democratically elected governments. Sure, right. Um, so we viewed it, particularly in the Cold War, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Kind of Bay up, of Pigs in there someplace. Kind of Bay of Pigs in there, um, in through kind of Reagan and Iran-Contra. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all as a proxy of the Cold War, uh, and what we cared most about was who was on our side in the Cold War, and we were less concerned about democracy. Okay. The, the kind of being champions of democracy in the Western Hemisphere is, is actually a pretty recent thing for the United States. Okay. Um, and it starts kind of lay, kind of George H.W. Bush okay. forward. Um, and you see actually a change um, in Chile where we where we start being concerned about human rights violations um, by the Pinochet government and support a plebiscite that ends up 
um, leading to the democratic transition in Chile. Um, we see Operation Just Cause, which is the invasion of Panama to mm-hmm. get rid of Noriega. Yep. Um, somewhat war on drugs, somewhat um, an opportunity to look tough by a sure. commander-in-chief who needed to look tough at the time. Yep. Um, but was fundamentally something that put Panama on a path to a mm-hmm. functioning democracy that it is today. Uh, so that has largely been where the U.S. has come down recently. But when most people think and talk about U.S. intervention in the hemisphere, again, we often said it was in the name of democracy, but it really was in the name of stability. No, that makes sense. Um, and that and 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 it didn't work for the most part. The reason I ask that is because um, you know Maduro is now saying things like um, you know like we don't need them; they can get out of here, hit the road. We're on our own. We don't need handouts now. That presupposes that he actually has a platform to say this, which which he clearly doesn't. But there's a little bit there's always a little hair of truth there right, right. there's it, it's it's tricky right um you know regime change uh is a is a term um that obviously and quite rightly got discredited by the bush administration george w bush's war of choice in iraq i think one of the tricks here is to almost leave the language aside and uh-huh. say kind of what are we fundamentally for here sure and what we are fundamentally for here is that the Venezuelan people get to freely choose who their leader is. Okay, sure. Um, given that choice, that will lead to a different set of actors running the country than are running it today. Okay. So, yes, the regime would change. Right. <laughs> but right. by democratic means. And not tanks and, and not, streets not tanks and like and, Yeah, not, not tanks and <laughs> cruise missiles and, and all the and rest whatnot. of stuff. Right. right. Um, so I, I think one of the balancing axes in this conversation right now on Venezuela is, um, A, not to fall into an antiquated debate about good, bad, or indifferent uh, interventions of the United States in Latin America sure. in the past, um, or equate this somehow with Iraq. Okay. Um, the, you know, folks should be able to come around, come together around defending kind of core democratic values. And then there is a question of tactics, and there's mm-hmm. a question of how far will the United States or others mm-hmm. go um, to help promote the ability of the Venezuelan people to choose uh, their own destiny. Right. And it goes to, I mean, my guess is you could have four or five or six million different answers on what that is, right? right. You know, um, if the end goal is, it would seem to me the end goal is they should probably eat like food, like, you right. know what I mean? And so how you get there, do you, how you, get there, do you blow right. up a bridge and to deliver food or do you not, right? right? It seems like that's a whole, there's a range of issues that probably people smarter than I you know, <laughs> would, would be able to figure this out. Right, now this is, this, and, it, and it's awfully fluid. And, and again, the, one of the biggest tricks right now is, um, and all eyes are kind of on the Venezuelan military. Yeah. Um, there's really actually three groups of armed actors in Venezuela that everybody should pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So there's the traditional military. There's the National Guard. And then there's these groups of paramilitaries, the kind of ar- informal armed thugs okay. called colectivos, mm-hmm. collectives. Um, for the most part, the Maduro regime has had, again, I mentioned earlier that it's a failed state with cash flow. Sure is a weird thing yeah so you can weird pay the military guys so you know you can pay all three of those guys and keep them on the same side of the equation uh, okay right okay right. makes sense so one of the tricks and one of the things that's going to have to happen eventually um is you're gonna have to break that up mm-hmm. and the question is how do you break it up mm-hmm. and there's 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 the direct application of military force would break it up right yep. that's the least desirable because that would require outside intervention mm-hmm. that's the least desirable way of breaking it up 
um, you can somehow cut off the revenue that is allowing um, those three guys, those three actors to be paid off sure. so that they then have to fight amongst themselves for less revenue. Yep. Um, you can also create a circumstance where you put enough people in the street for enough time, repression ramps up mm-hmm. to a point where one of them, probably the military, because they're the most professional group sure. left, gets to a point where they say no more repression. Okay. They, that they'll no longer take that order. So we're going to go and move those three things, and those right. guys are moving the bread across the bridge. Correct. Right, okay. Um, which would probably put them in conflict with the other two armed groups. I mean, sure. So, and one of the things that's gotten lost in this debate, um, in this conversation about this new government, and do you recognize, do you not recognize who's where we started, who's yeah. the president of Venezuela, um, is that almost inevitably the, what comes next in Venezuela isn't necessarily going to look a whole lot better and could look worse sure, than sure. what's happening in Venezuela right. today. Because, again, if you break that power structure, mm-hmm. there's a lot of vested interest in, in keeping a hold of, of their piece of it. Sure. You could, you could see you a military could, coup. You could see, you could see yes, any number you of could see, things, right? You could see the place get more violent. Mm-hmm. You could see more people leaving Venezuela than already are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the kind of the biggest question in my mind right now is 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 the United States and everybody else ready to deal with that? Right. So I have two more questions for you, and one is, and you know, can kind of one is kind of where do we go from here, and then the second is, you know, I'd love for you to talk about your kind of history of doing this. So let's start with where do we go from here? You know, are there is there any impending deadlines in the next month, say, where something could happen? I mean, other than it feels like when you're hungry today is the only thing that matters, you're hungry, right? So uh, I'm putting that right. fully aside. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it, again, putting aside the suffering of the Venezuelan people for a second, yeah, which like, sounds as callous as it sounds. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's a real question as to whether there's an action forcing of it. Okay. Um, and that's, I think, one of the dilemmas that um, those who have kind of rallied around Juan Guaido face. Mm-hmm. This is hard to sustain. Right. Um, if a month from now, Nicolás Maduro is still where he was a month ago. Sure. Um, it's going to be hard to keep people on the street. It's going to be hard to keep the international community f- focused. It's mm-hmm. going to we'll kind of move on to the next shiny object. Yep. Um, so there's no hard and fast deadline. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of clear action-forcing event out there. Um, but there is this real question of how long can you sustain this kind of pressure. So uh, uh, related to that, I wonder what you think about this. You've done a lot of work in the region. So why does the American government care so much about what happens in Latin America, but the American people, it <laughs> feels like, don't give a crap? This is something I've asked myself a lot and spent a lot of time on. Um, Specific examples, you know, for people who read the newspaper, which is like 11 people left. This is not an A1 story and probably won't be. No. And I always actually, I I did go back to one of my previous gigs. Um, So during the, during President Obama's first term, I was the special, special assistant to the president and Senior Director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the mm-hmm. National Security Council. Yep. It's a very long title. My business card used to fold out. <laughs> um, and the fancy way of saying I was, I was President Obama's main Latin American policy advisor. And at one point, um, kind of the thing that really crystallized this for me, is at one point I took the following individuals somewhere. So I took the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Director of National Intelligence, the President's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, 
the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Commander of the United States Northern Command, um, and a couple other folks. Sure. You know, those folks, that group of people has coffee in D.C. together, Mm -hmm. and it's A1 News. Yeah, of course. Um, I took them to Mexico City together. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's as if I had taken them witness protection. To Like, to disappeared. <laughs> and, like, completely disappeared. We couldn't, with the full force of the White House press office, we couldn't get people to write about it. Huh. Uh, and, it and it baffled me. Yeah. Um, but I actually think one of the reasons behind this um, is structural, post-World War II era. Sure. Um, most of U.S. In t- it, attention in the world was very transatlantic. Okay. Um. And kind of all the programs, right? Like mm-hmm. the boondoggle trips mm-hmm. and that people yep. got to, like the up-and-coming journalists and up-and-coming politicians and right. up-and-coming yep. policy wonks mm-hmm. all got to go visit somewhere in Europe. Okay. Um, and, you know, if they're really lucky, they got to go walk around Red Square sure. and, and kind of see the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of that was like everything international was geared that way. Mm-hmm. Left, right, instead of north, south. Exactly. And then, kind of the the modern version of that was we still did a lot of transatlantic. Sure. Then we started doing some transpacific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So like Japan and so China, Japan and, all and China and Korea. And I always use my own example. I've I've gone on none of these trips, but in the course I've spent the last twenty five years in Washington, mm-hmm. um, working on international issues in mm-hmm. one way, shape, or form. Um, as a congressional staffer, as a lawyer, as a think tanker in mm-hmm. the administration. Um, and now in a combination of roles. And during that entire time, I've gotten invited to go to China and Japan and Taiwan and South Korea and Germany and Spain and Israel and a bunch of places, you know, literally a half dozen times. Um, and not once mm-hmm. to any country south mm. of the Rio Grande. Interesting. Um, so, and I think that ends up getting reflected in our media. Yeah, that sure. Gets ref- in terms sure. Of, because I'm sure if I haven't gotten invited and I've been working on these issues. Yeah. Um, I'm doubting most uh, most other people have. Sure. And so that gets that's a re- I think that's one of the reasons that these issues don't end up on A1, although, you know, I often say there's no country in the world that affects the United States more than Mexico. Sure, absolutely. But you are hard-pressed to find mm-hmm. foreign policy, national security um, officials, policymakers who actually know anything about Mexico. Interesting. So um, I could go down that road for three hours, uh, including pointing out the fact that those folks speak a different language than we do and potentially look different than we do, and maybe that has something to do with it, it as well. It may have something to do with it. Um, but I want to just take a step back, because people who listen to this podcast, we talk about doing work in Washington. So put on your old hat. You worked in the White House. Um, uh, something happens. You don't just it can be real or theoretical. Right. Something happens in the Latin world, and President Obama calls you, and you're at your kid's basketball game, which I'm sure has happened to you. Indeed. And uh, says, you know, like, what the hell's going on in fill-in-the-blank country? Right. How, what do you do next? A, you got to make sure the, the very first thing I, and the most important thing I learned, and this actually goes to the, what we were talking about on Venezuela. Um, when you sit there, um, and particularly when you're talking to the president of the United States, you have to very quickly determine whether something is a problem or our problem. Sure. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And the interesting thing in Latin America, and this goes back to this ownership question we yep. were talking about is a lot of people's instincts is that every problem in Latin America is our problem. Sure, right. Um, President Obama didn't view it that way. I don't view it that way. 
Um, so that a President problem, Trump certainly doesn't view it. He <laughs> certainly doesn't view it, although he's busy creating as many problems <laughs> as he can uh, um, for countries in Latin America. Um, the but but this kind of that differentiation between uh-huh. is this a problem or our problem mm-hmm. um, is one of the first things you have to be clear in your own head and then try making it as clear as you can or at least as clear a case as you can yep. to the president to see if he shares that view or not. Yeah, right. Um, and, and again, another example of the kind of call in the middle of the night, it wasn't from the president, but it was from the White House Situation Room. Sure. Um, this is shortly after there was a devastating earthquake in Haiti in um, January of 2010. Sure. That occupied a lot of time and attention. Mm-hmm. Um, some six weeks after that, maybe. That, yeah. I got a call, the, the proverbial, and it was literally the 3, 3 a.m. Sure. call. And, uh, and it was a private, I always forget the private's last name, um, from who is serving the watch as the watch officer at the National Security Council um, Situation Room. And he calls me at home. Uh, I still had a landline at the time. And uh, Mr. Restrepo calling you to, tell, to inform you that there's been a magnitude 7.8 earthquake 200 nautical miles south southwest of and that of the 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 lag between where like waiting to hear where it was it's one of the longer lags i can ever remember uh and he said santiago chile mm-hmm. uh, and my response uh much to his surprise uh was oh good <laughs> he's like, he's like, it's not in Haiti. He's, he's like, excuse me, sir. No, it was more so that if there was a country in the region that could handle it without it becoming our problem. Oh, interesting. It was Chile. Mm-hmm. They live on the ring of fire. They're used to this sort of thing. Sure, They're yep. built to survive mm-hmm. these sorts of mm-hmm. things. Um, and that was the moment where the distinction between is this a problem or our problem mm-hmm. kind of was immediately crystallized. Um, and and then the the litany of like oh, it, it, once he once I explained to him why yeah. I had said oh good, yeah. um, then the question became should I should we wake up the deputy national security advisor the national security yep. advisor, kind of who on the food chain do we have and mm-hmm. I was like no 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 let me, because it was a problem and not our problem it's like I'll come into the office we'll wait until the sun comes up mm-hmm. and then we'll call Dennis and Tom sure. to let them know that this has happened mm-hmm. and what it is that we need to do about mm-hmm. it. So I gave myself, you know, three or four hours to get in front of it and wake up other people. Or make a bunch of phone calls. Make, and, make yeah. a bunch of phone calls and wake up a bunch of folks yeah. to figure out what it is that needed to be done. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to cut it off there. We can go on for three hours. But Dan Restrepo, thanks for coming into 14th and G. Thank you very much. It's always a great joy to talk to my pal, Dan. More importantly, he's a super smart guy. If you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. Until next time, we'll be right here at 14th and G.